Hello and welcome to this edition of the Unofficial Report, a podcast from the Women in Public Affairs Scotland Network. Before we get into the episode, a quick word about Women in Public Affairs Scotland, or as we like to call ourselves, WIPA Scotland. WIPA Scotland brings together professionals working at all levels in public affairs, politics, communications and policy in Scotland to network, build friendships and provide support, advice and training. Our executive committee of volunteers organise events throughout the year on issues that are important to public affairs professionals in Scotland. And since launching in 2020, we've heard from ministers, parliamentarians, inspirational campaigners, journalists and more. And this is the Unofficial Report, a monthly podcast which, unlike our namesake in the Scottish Parliament, provides space for discussion and analysis of all that is happening in Scottish politics and public policy off the record. Hello and welcome to this episode. Your hosts for today are myself, Kimberly Summerside. I'm the Secretary at Women in Public Affairs Scotland and I'm joined by Lucy, who is the Chair at Women in Public Affairs Scotland. I've got a really exciting episode today. Um, we're going to be speaking to Ashley McLean, the Policy and Parliamentary Officer at the Poverty Alliance. Hi, Ashley. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I guess to kick off, um, I wonder if you could let us know a little bit about your role and a little bit about the Poverty Alliance. What is the Poverty Alliance? Who are your members? Tell us everything. Cool. So Poverty Alliance is Scotland's anti-poverty network. Um, we were founded in 1992 um, as the Strathclyde Poverty Alliance, campaigning to introduce something called cold weather credits to address fuel poverty, but changed to the Poverty Alliance in 96 and since then have grown year upon year. We have a currently stands at over 450 members, which is pretty good. Um, and that covers trade unions, faith groups, local authorities, and of course, a good chunk of the third sector, stemming from, you know, tiny wee little community organisations, little run food banks, right the way up to your bigger organisations. Um, we campaign to end poverty in Scotland and a particular importance to us is ensuring that we have the voices of folk with lived experience shaping our calls for a policy change. That's great. And in terms of your role within the Poverty Alliance, what's your day to day? What are you doing um, at the Poverty Alliance? So as the policy and parliamentary officer, my job is kind of liaising with the government, telling them what they're doing good, what they're not doing, what they're not doing so good, and telling them to change that to varying degrees of success. <laughs> but yeah, so my job day to day is um, yeah, lobbying, writing consultation responses, arranging meetings with MSPs, etc. And yeah, kind of all things political, which I enjoy. <laughs> Yeah, and our listeners will be really into that as well. Got a lot of policy yeah. folk as well. That's great. Um, and in terms of so, the Poverty Alliance exists to end poverty. Um, so you're sort of one of these organisations that's campaigning for to not exist as an organisation anymore would be the ideal situation. Um, but how do you define poverty within the Poverty Alliance? Um, how how does it affect people beyond um, the sort of financial implications of poverty? Yeah, so in terms of how we define poverty, it's basically the fundamental issue of not having enough money to make ends meet. It means a complete separation from what folk need day to day in order to make ends meet. And that includes being able to afford things like your food, your bills, clothing, your housing costs, travel costs, etc. And we look at poverty as kind of fundamentally taking dignity and decency out of people's lives on the basis of not having enough. 
In terms of how it impacts people, as you say, obviously the financial implications are quite obvious, but especially when we look at other areas such as health outcomes, we know that people in poverty are more likely to experience poor mental health. They're more likely to experience poor, poor physical health, such as you know, kind of things like heart disease, liver disease, etc. And we look at other areas such as addiction, we know that poverty is a key factor in people who have problem substance or alcohol use. So we know that poverty is responsible for so many different of um so many different kind of societal problems. I think it's been really interesting when we're discussing the kind of um you know the sustainability of the NHS for example that there's been this real disconnect between addressing poverty as a substantial way that we can help save the NHS for example yeah yeah absolutely that rings so true with my job as well so um yeah I think that prevention element is something that we haven't really got to grips with as a as a country but I won't get into that and actually the the dignity um the dignity and decency element of that really links into a conversation we might have later in this episode spoiler alert about the human rights bill um but the reason that we're having this episode is because we've got challenge poverty week coming up so um I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the origins of challenge poverty week what is it what's it campaigning for um and where has it come from so yeah, Challenge Poverty Week was started in 2013. So it's actually our 10 year anniversary this year. Mm. And it was founded in response to austerity, really. It was looking at this kind of gross disinvestment from social security, these massive cuts to public services and you know the third sector, all these different areas. And it was felt that this was an injustice. Challenge Poverty Week is a set point in the year where we can bring together voices from across the country and across different sectors to call attention to poverty, how pervasive it is, and also to call attention to the solutions that we need to see to end poverty in Scotland. It's been a really successful campaign from what I've seen in previous years. It's really is a really strong um, strong week and strong policy asks mm-hmm. every year. So I wonder if you could, I know there's five themes for this year's poverty Challenge Poverty Week, could you walk us through the five themes and maybe we can dip into some of the policy asks that you're going for? Sure. So we've kind of used our themes this year to kind of be a bit more visionary and more centering the campaign on what we want Scotland to look like. So on Monday, we're looking at um, uh, Scotland, where we value our communities and volunteers. That's calling specifically on fair and sustainable funding for the third sector. On Tuesday, we're looking at ensuring a Scotland where everyone can get where they need to go. And that focuses on transport. So looking at things like expanding concessionary bus travel. We know that the under 22 scheme has been a really big success. So we're looking at trying to use that to get more people able to access public transport. Um, On Wednesday, we're looking at a Scotland where we all have access to an adequate income that meets our needs. And we'll talk a little bit about this later, but that focuses on the policy ask of introducing a minimum income guarantee. On Thursday is a Scotland where we all have access to a safe and secure home that meets our needs. And that is looking at housing, obviously. So ensuring that the Scottish government is meeting their social housing, building targets, implementing a homelessness duty, things like that. And Friday is ensuring that no one in Scotland goes hungry and that's looking at being able to access food. So for that, we've been looking at ensuring that there's adequate cash first support to allow people to be able to make choices about their own diets and food choices, but also looking at these bigger structural issues. And I think over the past you know year and a bit, 
you know, it's no secret that we've seen supermarkets hike prices, regardless of how it impacts on communities. So that's why we've been calling on the Scottish government to in, try and implement something that ensures that supermarkets have to kind of keep low level prices on the essential items, such as milk, pasta, bread. That's really great. I mean, great asks throughout the whole week. Um, you mentioned the minimum income guarantee. I wonder if you could just explain um, for those of us who don't know what the minimum income guarantee actually is and actually even is it something that we're already talking about or the government's already talking about where are we with it so um yeah no definitely i think it's a new concept and i think people are definitely still getting their head around it and um, so a minimum income guarantee is a simple yet potentially transformative policy it's the idea that there should be a basic income floor of which no one falls below and that encompasses work so ensuring that people have got decent enough incomes to make ends meet but you know, crucially is that the state would step in with social security that is a bottom level that ensures that everyone can meet their basic needs. That's especially important for people who, you know, work isn't an appropriate route. For example, some people with certain disabilities or, you know, people who have children and, you know, people who may be dealing with mental health issues. It's different to, and it's always important to say this, it's different to a UBI. It's not a mm. universal basic income in that it's not universal. You know, it's a targeted social security scheme, not scheme, targeted social security policy that focuses specifically on the folk who need it. So it's a lot cheaper than UBI. Um, but yeah, it's the idea of kind of putting dignity and compassion back into the social security system. We believe that um, especially universal credit is fundamentally inadequate and is actively driving up poverty rates and minimum income guarantee is our solution. That is really interesting. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the UBI because it's yeah. one of those questions that was in the back of my head because you sometimes hear people talking about universal basic income and then minimum income guarantee but they're yeah. totally different and actually that targeted approach and actually given that we're all sort of in this time where we're talking about um the human rights bill and th that minimum baseline that yeah. minimum baseline of uh, social security is is an interesting um idea so that's really that's really great i mean um we've had the pro program for government fairly recently and I think in the programme for government, the First Minister described his government as unapologetically anti-poverty. Um, and one of his first, one of his core missions, I can't remember if it was the first one actually now, that was one of the WIPA pub quiz questions, but um, one of his core missions was on equality and that was about, or based on tackling poverty and protecting mm -hmm. people from harm. Um, so it's looking, it looks, or it sounds like tackling poverty is still one of the central missions of his government. Mm -hmm. What were your views in the programme for government? Or is that how the Poverty Alliance is feeling? Is it an encouraging programme for government or what are the thoughts? I think we were definitely um we were definitely critical of the programme for government. We felt that there was a lot of chat about being radical, about this being a game changer, and then it was kind of a lot of we're gonna keep doing what we're doing and here's a couple of things we're gonna pilot or we're mm -hmm. gonna explore doing this. And it was a bit yeah, we were a bit disappointed, um, to be fair. However, there are good things that are in the programme for government. Looking at the minimum income guarantee, for example, we know that there's a commitment to look at supporting unpaid caterers through that, which is fantastic because they are a group that are particularly vulnerable to poverty. Um, other things look like, you know, it's kind of 
it's that one of those things that the program for government definitely hinted on a lot of problem areas, but didn't really deliver the action we need to see to rectify the issue. So, for example, the childcare asks, it talks about doing these kind of pilot projects in six local authorities to expand the childcare offer to children from the age of nine months up to two years, which, you know, is great. Like we know that a lot of people struggle with childcare costs, especially in those first couple of years. However, we also know from folk with lived experience of poverty that the real issues with the childcare offer isn't necessarily to do with age groups, that is important. However, it's about the lack of available places to send your child and crucially the fact that it doesn't work for people who maybe work shifts and work irregular hours. So we've seen that the people who really benefit most from the childcare provision have been people that work nine to fives and nine to fives, as we know, are more likely to be you know, kind of middle-class, upper-class professions where the hours are more predictable. So yeah, again, there's like wins and losses and we feel like, you know, I've, we really appreciate the fact that we think the rhetoric has changed around poverty. Like I think we're seeing, especially in the Scottish government, is very, very clear, you know, we are going to tackle poverty. This is our priority. And we think the child poverty targets, which we'll speak about later, are really central to that. But yeah, it was a bit, we were kind of like maybe naively excited and then we read it and we were like, oh, okay. Cool. Uh, yeah, I, I guess it's it's so easy to get excited when the rhetoric does that initial sort of before the programme for government comes out, you've got that rhetoric that sounds really encouraging and it, mm -hmm. it could be really game changing. But then, yeah, it sounds like it's been a little bit disappointing, actually. I was just going to circle back, if that's OK, to sure. um, the uh, the pilot for unpaid carers. So is that is, is it a pilot for unpaid carers in terms of the minimum income guarantee? Is that what they're sort of planning? Or um, I think it's like, I'll have to check the exact wording if I'm honest, because I can't remember exactly what it said, but I think it said like, it was something alluding to exploring a minimum income guarantee in relation to unpaid carers, which again is a tricky one because I think the problem that we're seeing I think this is felt throughout the third sector and probably the public and private sectors as well. It's like a lot of these social issues such as poverty, we already know what needs to happen. We know how much money people need to make ends meet. We know and have suggested ways that the Scottish government can boost incomes to eradicate poverty. We know that there are certain areas where the Scottish government needs to expand provision, whether that's public transport, whether it's housing, whether it's, you know, the Scottish child payment, for example. And yet it's this whole, oh, we're going to explore we're going to look at, we're going to research. And it's like, you don't need to. We know what the issues are. We know what the solutions are. It's that classic implementation gap. And I think that, you know, summits and roundtables are all great, you know, and we've seen Hamza, his government, the First Minister, sorry, has taken, you know, a real direct approach to engaging more with the sectors through these means. However, it's kind of a bit like, okay so all these research all these years upon years of conversations and you're still saying we need to have more chat like we don't we need you to act and I think again that was the real kind of disappointing thing about this real claim of change and radical action and it just wasn't that yeah yeah it's hard to claim that pilots are radical yeah. <laughs> you know they're like oh we're yeah. going to test the waters and then you're going to be like oh too expensive and then yeah. not anymore so yeah. but, but you know there are things like for example taking like um peak fares for example the pilot around peak fares of trains and removing them that's great and um, however again it's an area where we know that people who live in poverty are more likely to use the bus mm -hmm. so again it's the way they're kind of packaging up a lot of these measures as anti-poverty when in reality it's like no you're just doing it feels sometimes that they're just doing things that are marketable mm -hmm. and you know peak fares removing them is going to save a lot of people money and especially peak fares feel like definitely a punishment for working a lot of the time because you're like okay great I've got to be in for nine 
I've got no choice but to pay this extortionate fare for no apparent reason. So yeah, again, it's it's a tricky one. And I think, yeah, we were quite harsh with the program for government. Um, but I don't I don't necessarily know if that was a bad thing. No, it's good. It's good, constructive. Um, good to be, what do they call it? A critical friend. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so in terms of the, there's a couple of your asks then that have been picked up in the programme for government. So this minimum income guarantee, it looks like it's going to be explored. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also the prevention of homelessness or the duties for prevention of homelessness, that's something that's going to come in the housing bill that they're due to introduce. Is that something that Poverty Alliance is going to be working on then going forward? Yeah, definitely. I think housing is a really central component of um, anti-poverty. And I think like, if we're being honest, and I don't think people in the anti-poverty sector would disagree with me on this, and especially I know people in the housing sector would disagree with me on this, but I feel like the anti-poverty sector and the housing sector haven't worked together as well as we could have on the provision of housing and the affordability of housing. So, and again, it's another thing with that they talked about introducing this uh, homelessness prevention you see they've talked about introducing it through this bill but we know that when a bill is introduced it will be consulted on it will be amended and so it's this whole thing again of a very clear ask about implement a homelessness prevention duty especially in public bodies and yet it's still this okay we're going to explore that through a bill and it's kind of like or you just do it like Mm -hmm. you're the government (laughs) you guys are the ones in charge um, but in terms of, yeah, I think homelessness, especially when we're seeing kind of rates of the number of children that are in temporary accommodation, I can't remember the exact number, but it's in thousands. And these housing situations are so unfit for purpose and they're really harmful for especially children and parents. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a good move to ensure that we're realising that homelessness isn't just, you know, a social issue it's an economic issue and it require and it's a structural issue homelessness doesn't just happen it's usually multiple factors one after another that put people into those situations and therefore we need structural solutions to that issue and that requires the work of all sectors and I think there's more and we we kind of juggled with this idea when we were developing the policy asks and with our short life working group but We also think there's a lot to be done in the private sector when it comes to housing, but we're still figuring out how to do that because again, it's that, you know, that I think that classic thing of people who think that, you know, maybe take a very neoliberal approach and that markets will regulate themselves versus people that say, no, the state needs to step in and regulate these for the benefit of people. And I think the role of the private sector, both in terms of private housing providers and also developers, I think is an issue that we really need to be a bit bolder on. So We'll see what this homelessness prevention duty and this bill looks like. I'm hopeful it will be good. And obviously I'm a big fan of rent controls. Um, so we'll see what comes of that. Um, as a private renter myself, I am praying for them to be introduced because Glasgow ain't cheap. Um, but yeah, we will, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. That's really interesting. We'll be looking out for that over the next um, year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, So you mentioned the number of children living in, um, in or experiencing homelessness, um, which brings me on to sort of my final question about um, child poverty, because mm-hmm. it comes across sort of from someone who's sort of slightly outside of the uh, of the conversation. Child poverty comes across really strongly in the program for government, um, and I think that that's something that's been quite common for the last few years. Something mm-hmm. that the government always upholds is the um, Scottish child payment. Um, so I was just going to ask: Do you think that this focus on um, on tackling child poverty is a product of the child poverty targets, keeping the government focused on that as a policy issue, or is it 
more the success of the Scottish child payment is that you know if, if it's working then keep it working and um, mm -hmm. is it that kind of which or is it a bit of both? I'd say probably a bit of both. I think the initial kind of drive for um, kind of the Scottish child payment itself was the child poverty target. So it's kind of a bit of a chicken and egg situation. I think the Scottish child poverty targets are really good. I think they definitely keep the government focused on track and it's because they're statutory and they're set in law. It gives especially organisations in the anti-poverty sector a really strong point to drive change and to drive policy. I think the Scottish child payment is really central to that. And I think, I don't know how up-to-date this modelling is, but at last check, I think IPPR Scotland did some modelling and we know that the payment needs to reach roughly £40 per week per child in order to meet the Scottish child targets. Sorry, the, Scot the child poverty targets. Um, however, that being said, I think that there's also this issue of the fact that it's not just money like going into people's pockets. It's also about controlling the cost around them. And again, that's where these kind of structural issues such as housing and transport, etc. It's really crucial that the government is looking about how to keep costs low um, in order to ensure that the Scottish child payment isn't just then this massive influx of cash, which is then ultimately pointless because costs are so expensive that it's cancelling out the change it could make. But yeah, fundamentally, I think the Scottish child payment is a good thing. And I think the child poverty targets are also a good thing. Yeah, that's great. I think what I'm probably going to do, because I've hogged the mic for way too long and lost track of time, um, is hand over to Lucy, who I think is going to take us on to some questions about the human rights legislation coming up. Yes. Um, and again, just to caveat, this is a really complicated area. Yeah. Um, so I think even just having that context of the Programme for Government and Challenge Poverty Week will really help us explore the answers here. Um, but for those listeners that don't know, uh, Scottish Government is currently consulting on a Scottish Human Rights Bill. Consultation for that closes on the 5th of October. We've had a four-month consultation period instead of a three-month consultation period because there are 44 questions. Um, I know that both Ashley and Kimberly on this call will be answering that consultation um, alongside my organisation, which is Human Rights Consortium Scotland. I know I didn't uh, introduce that at the start, um, but it's massive and <laughs> it's all about taking international law and putting it in domestic law. Mm -hmm. So it's about giving us this legal framework, which means that people that are living in poverty might be able to actually challenge when their human rights are being violated. And I just wanted to ask, Ashley, what your thoughts were on how poverty and human rights are connected in the context of Scotland. Um, I'm curious to know how addressing issues related to poverty might also contribute to the safeguarding and promoting of basic rights of people in Scotland. Because I think quite often um, at the consortium we talk about our everyday basic rights mm -hmm. instead of these wider rights that are already ratified into UK law, such as the right to life, which we, we've seen for decades. But this, this bill is really about these basic rights. So, yeah, how are they interconnected, Ashley? Sorry, that was a huge introduction. No, I think huge, but I think very crucial. You're right, it's it's such a complex area. And I think, yeah, obviously we kind of knew this human rights consultation was coming and it was really like, exciting. And then I read the questions and I was like, oh my God, I know nothing. <laughs> I am a novice. So <laughs> it's been a steep learning curve, definitely. Agreeing with you that it is <laughs> absolutely ginormous. <laughs> 
It's massive. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's been a good area for us to explore. And we have, um, we have a rights in action project, which is part of the Poverty Alliance, which is run by my um, wonderful colleague, Lydia, who is our development officer. Little name drop there. She's great. Um, but yeah, so we've been looking exactly at that question about how do poverty and human rights interact and why is anti-poverty so fundamental to ensuring the realisation of human rights? And I think it's that when we look at purely from an income point of view, not having enough money means that you can't realise a lot of your human rights. And so when we're looking at low income of social security, when we're looking at minimum wages, which are fundamentally inadequate to meet living costs, you can see these areas that, that when the government is kind of held accountable for meeting human rights on a domestic level, that these issues really become under quite a sharp spotlight and sharp focus. And so if we're looking at things like, for example, the right to food, which is one of the areas that's getting explored in the bill or the right to a healthy environment, for example, these two things are quite related, I think, when it comes to anti-poverty, because we look at where, if you think about social housing schemes, council estates and things, they're quite often built on the outskirts of towns and cities. And they're in these places where we call them food deserts, where basically the only shops you have access to are these tiny wee corner stores and key stores where all the food is in fridges and freezers because none of it's fresh. It's all, you know, high saturated fats, high sugar, quite unhealthy, convenient food. And then, you know, we wonder why people in poverty are more prone to be overweight and have negative health outcomes. So again, that's like one area we can look at it. The right to adequate housing. This is another area where it's quite central and where I think that kind of taking it into domestic law, like when we hear about the number of children in temporary accommodation, how do the government how does the government choose to respond to that if people living on low incomes are able to advocate for and say that you know you you violate my human rights here my human rights are being violated i can't access adequate housing because you're not building enough social homes you're not controlling rent levels and these kind of issues are um you know areas that we're still trying to grapple and get our head around um, I think another area which is going to be, I think, a bugbear, and I think a lot of people are going to be grappling this with the consultation is definitely the, the issue around devolution, especially when it comes to that right to an adequate level of social security. Um, where, wherever you sit in terms of the constitutional debate, I think we can all agree in the policy sector that it's so hard to try and, especially in social security, to lobby the Scottish government when we know that a lot of the fundamental issues with social security are reserved to Westminster. And it's this horrible kind of area of, when it comes to this human rights legislation, how do we ensure that the Scottish government is doing exactly what the consultation calls on, the bill calls on, is that you will use every means necessary, all resources available to you, in order to ensure people can meet that fundamental minimum core obligation. Um, and you know how that's going to play out in terms of oh, well, Westminster have done this, so we can't really do anything about that. Um, so yeah, um, that's kind of a, that was a bit rambly, but that's kind of a roughly, a very broad look at how anti-poverty and the human rights kind of interact in Scotland. No, I think it's, uh, I mean, again, I'm just trying to imagine this conversation from someone that is quite literally not in the trenches of writing the responses for these consultations, yeah. because um, it just feels like that's what we've been doing all yeah. summer. It doesn't, has not felt like a summer holiday, which you know should lead to something good and um, there's quite a few points I wanted to pick up on there before mm -hmm. I go go to the next question and that's first to just give that listener some more context that we are incorporating some 
thing into UK, uh, Scottish law, sorry, called economic, social and cultural rights, otherwise known as ICESCAR. Those rights will encompass a wide range of essential elements necessary for human rights and uh, well-being, such as the right to work, the right to education, the right to health, right to adequate housing, the right to participate in cultural life. Poverty, as you have um, so well defined at the start of this, Ashley, is characterised by the lack of access to resources and opportunities and basic necessities, such as food, shelter, education, and healthcare. Um, you said there that like no one person's environment is the same. So, you know, loads of people will not live in adequate housing. Loads of people do not have access to food on a, an adequate level either and we've got these areas of contention within this bill as well where there will not be enough devolved powers that universal rights will be met for example for asylum seekers and refugees a lot of law around those people is held with the UK government so it's it's really heartbreaking to try and explain this bill for their point of view of like I, will your rights be protected as much as anyone else and I just wanted to ask at the moment without that bill, is there a gap in Scotland and are we failing people because of that? Um, so as in, have we failed to address those in poverty are being failed on their basic economic and social rights, those basic necessities without this legal framework coming in? Yeah, I think I think it's exactly as you say that there are certain groups that we know are more vulnerable to poverty. And I think these, these are particularly the groups that I think we're failing right now. Um, I think one group is disabled people. And I know that there, I can't remember the acronym, but I know there is um, a specific kind of covenant looking at um, the rights for disabled people. And I think, um, you know, we look at this group and especially through um, the kind of cost of living crisis and kind of going into this winter, I think if you're looking at certain um, conditions where folk have to, run certain pieces of equipment through the night if they have to have a warm home in order to not exacerbate existing conditions then but yet there's this complete lack of kind of targeted adequate targeted support then we're looking at letting these people down because we're not fundamentally ensuring that they can meet their needs similar with asylum seekers i think that the way that asylum seekers and refugees are treated is appalling in this country and i think that I think, again, this is another area where devolution is such a headache when it comes to it. This kind of whole no recourse to public funds, which is, um, you know, people aren't allowed to access any, not even just social security, but even services that are funded by public money. So, for example, there's been a great campaign kind of headed by Paul Sweeney, MSP, Scottish Labour MSP, about um, expanding concessionary travel to migrants. And we've been supporting that in our policy asks this year. But the, the the kind of roadblock we're hitting is the fact that the Scottish government are like, it's public funds, so we can't give them that. And it's horrible because you see that it's not just poverty that these groups are facing, it's destitution. Um, and I think when you look back to this fundamental underpinning of human rights and that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter if you're you know, a citizen, you have, you should have access to these fundamental human rights. And I think on that basic metric, we are absolutely failing. Um, obviously, I'm not going to lie, I don't have a really in-depth understanding of um, immigration law, etc. And I'm not going to lie, no recourse to public funds is so confusing to me, I'm still getting my head around it. But I would say that there is definitely more the Scottish government could be doing to support people who have, you know, come here to escape war and danger and discrimination. 
But equally, again, a lot of the issues, the bulk of the issues do lie at Westminster, which again is where devolution is going to be such a core issue, I think, in responding to this consultation. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we've seen those challenges in the rights sector with the UNCRC. So that's mm-hmm. the Rights of the Child Bill over over the last few years. Um, and I just, I mean, this wasn't a question that I submitted to you ahead of time, so oh, yeah. I'm really <laughs> going to test you here. Yeah. But we keep saying that after this consultation period is when the real work will, will start on making this bill a reality and making sure that it isn't just discussions that the Scottish mm-hmm. government say they're going to hold or round tables or or whatever it is an actual legal framework people can challenge um it in court if a human rights violation has been made what like what are the poverty alliance apart from their consultation response going to do over the next year to make sure that the key messages for this human rights bill are drilled into that Scottish government you know like what what are the kind of top line asks of your consultation, I guess, is what I'm asking before you've even finished it. Um, but it would it would be really great to understand because I think it's all fine and well submitting a 44 question consultation to the government, but basically, how do we translate that to an everyday person? What what do the poverty lines want to see from this bill? I think for us, and it kind of comes back to that central again, a core component um of. Is it UNESCO? I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, this idea to be able to, you know, be able to participate and be able to um participate in culture, but also participate in democratic structures. I think we know that you know the Scottish government is doing a better job now. I would say, um, but there is still this real lack of targeted engagement with folk living on low incomes, um, and I think it ties to this kind of very stigmatized idea we have in society towards people who are relying on social security and people in poverty is definitely this more blame culture rather than looking at the structural issues that mean that somebody is in poverty which I think that COVID and the cost of living crisis have actually shone a light on and I think more people are aware that it's structural causes that create poverty not individual choices but to swing back in terms of what we are going to be calling on it's really embedding that participation process and defining those minimum core obligations we think that is central we also think what we are going to be calling for and what we're going to be keeping an eye on over the next couple of years i think is that devolution thing is this king especially because we focus a lot on social security and ensuring people are meeting a minimum income floor it's looking to make sure that the scottish government isn't flouting responsibility for that based on westminster they have some social security powers there are things they can do and we see kind of far too often this whole kind of nope that's probably universal credit not our bag and so we'll be keeping an eye on that other parts of this are going to be looking at this core concept of dignity and like ensuring that we have this understanding of what dignity means we obviously consider that any experience of poverty means that you are not being afforded dignity there's nothing dignified about going to a food bank there's nothing dignified about having to wear old tattered clothing because you cannot afford anymore or you know in the more extreme cases of people skipping meals living on the streets none of that is dignified and so when we look at that through an anti-poverty lens we realize that really in order to realize people's human rights we have to see poverty eradicated in Scotland and it's up to the Scottish government to do that so yeah no no small task but um we're gonna keep trying and keep putting pressure on them no, and I'm I'm honestly so impressed by how eloquently you put across those key messages as well when I asked you that on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. 
I'm actually um, surprised myself about that. Oh, wait, I actually do understand core components of this bill. Nice. <laughs> I feel you've actually just inspired me. I'm like amped up and ready to go add to our consultation oh. response. <laughs> yes. Uh, I saw you sort of scribbling down some notes there, Kevin. I was like, I bet you she's going to add that to your consultation <laughs> response. I'm going to so, request that it's like McLean 2023 um, citation, of course, of course. <laughs> Um, we'll definitely soundbite it on the consortium's Twitters or nice. X as yeah. well. Um, of course, X, that, that... it's not Twitter anymore, of course. Yeah, no. Not, no. Um, okay, we've, we have we are sort of coming to the end of these, this human rights interrogation, but I just <laughs> thought it would be, you know, looking ahead to what this human rights bill could do. Could you share some success stories or examples of policy changes over the last few years or maybe interventions that have positively impacted the realisation of basic human rights for people that are facing poverty in Scotland already. Like, what is an example of best practice that we should be following with this bill? Mm -hmm. So I think, again, when we look at poverty and kind of the poverty as a kind of division between human rights realisation um, and the individual, I think we're looking at policy interventions that ensure people can fully participate in society. And so I've got a couple, and both of them are kind of off the back of child poverty, the child poverty targets, which again is... Well, I alluded to the fact earlier, like they really were fantastic and they really have been helping to drive change. So I think two that are really influential is the first is the Scottish Child Payment. This fundamental concept of cash first support, give people the money and they can they can manage their own finances and, um, you know, trust and empower people, give people dignity and respect and give them the cash to spend the money on what they need to work for their households. Um, not only that in terms of how it's boosted incomes and kind of um, offset some of the policies which have really harmed families, such as the two child limit, I think is a good example, and the benefit cap. Again, another one, the benefit cap mitigation by the Scottish government. Again, another thing where it's this the fact that the benefit cap exists purely to just put a cap on spending, regardless of how it impacts the well-being and dignity of the households that are um, subject to it. So again, the mitigation by the Scottish government and the Scot the Scottish child payment really fundamental to helping people to realise their human rights, such as access to food, access to cultural life, these things. So, um, another one has definitely been the under twenty twos concessionary travel. I think that we did some work through our Get Heard Scotland project, which is a participation process where. We get folk with lived experience of poverty into a room and we discuss a certain policy area with them and they tell us what the issues are and what the solutions should be. And we show it to the Scottish government or whoever and say, do that. And um, we did one on the Fair Fares Review, which has been forthcoming, I think, since I was born, but we will get there. Um, but we looked at that and I think one thing that really came through for participants when they were talking about access to public transport was that that under 22 scheme was such a game changer to so many people. Like we're talking about children being able to get to school because they can afford public transport, children being able to just go into town and just hang out with their friends or, you know, that however much it is on first bus now, sorry, I probably shouldn't name drop a massive company, but I don't like them. Um, they like this £3,000 single ticket, kidding, okay, it's like £1.95, but it's enough. Um, you know, that money freed up is, you know, being able to buy like a cup of filter coffee or something with your pals. Like these tiny changes make such a difference when your experience of life has been massive restriction, like this kind of suffocating 
feeling of being able to do nothing, to make no errors, to make no wrong decisions, to never, ever overspend. Like for those of us who have always had a relatively comfortable income situation, you know what it's like to be able to misspend something, spend a little bit too much, and it's fine. That feeling does not exist when you're living on these massive restricted incomes. And so these policies such as Scottish Child Payment, the benefit cap mitigation and the under 22 scheme, these things that free up cash or give more cash are so fundamental to people realising their human rights and to fully participating in society. So, yeah, the Scottish government has done some things good. I will give them that. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think your your closing point there is probably the most important that it's just it's freeing for people to mm-hmm. actually participate in living a life um mm-hmm. because I think unless you've faced these huge barriers or lived in poverty you just can't understand it yourself yeah. you will not be able to understand that overwhelming crushing sense of yeah. feeling like you can't do anything um so yeah I think that's a really important note to end on and I also just need to disclose here I have also went off on first bus in another WIPA podcast so I need to say that we (laughs) we do not um these are our own opinions (laughs) I'm saying not speaking Ashley and Lucy (laughs) we are not speaking on behalf of WIPA Scotland slash um organizations um okay uh to close I just wanted to know how if anyone listening to this has been inspired, how organisations can get involved in Challenge Poverty Week and we're widely with Poverty Alliance. Um, Challenge Poverty Week 2023 is running from the 2nd of October to the 8th of October. Um, you can get involved in numerous ways. If you're really strapped for capacity and you don't have time, um, then you can get involved with us on social media, you know, tweet some ideas, share our policy asks, and you can do use the hashtag Challenge Poverty. Um, other ways that you can get involved is attending some of the Challenge Poverty Week events. We usually have, I think last year we had like around about a thousand events of that we know of. I know, big deal, big deal. And that, you know, ranges from schools doing, um, if there's any teachers listening, doing um, poverty awareness classes. We have um, ready to go um lesson plans which you can access on our website so if you want to get involved in any events use the lesson plans find out about the policy asks then you can go to our website at www.povertyalliance.org cpw and you can find everything there brilliant um i know that both both kimberly and i will be involved in our our day jobs as well so look, look forward to it um, and then we're going to end on a slightly different note and definitely more a lighter and personal note. We'd like to ask, and I'm going to ask this to everyone and I'll give my own as well, because again, can't shut up. But what is the best piece of career advice that you have ever received? I can see you can really rub in her head. <laughs> you can go last. <laughs> She's panicking. Um, so at WIPA, we're all about providing career advice to our members. And this will be something that I think listeners are keen to hear. So Ashley, you can go first. I'll go second. So I think the best thing that I, one of the things that's always resonated me when it comes to maybe not career advancement, but definitely career satisfaction is the idea that you should be always be learning or earning in a job. And I think, you know, I think especially when you're kind of getting started in your careers, it can be so difficult to get your foot in the door and figure out where you're going, what you want. Um, But if you're in a job, and you're either earning enough money to give you this vibrant and fun life outside of work, um, including your work, that's great. 
if not, as long as you're learning and kind of developing and upskilling and really engaging in topics that you care about, that's also fundamental too. Um, I think also we live, we definitely live in a situation where people default to higher education a lot. Like we've got this massive saturation of degrees. So that's not a bad thing. Like I think academia is really useful. Like I did a master's, for example. Um, but I think that there's often a big reliance on getting another degree, getting a master's to get your foot in the door. And I think my one career advice would be focus more on experience. Like if you're a student right now, volunteer. If it's politics you care about, go and try and get a part-time job for an MSP, a party, volunteer at your trade union, your tenants union, whatever it may be, because those give you such valuable access to information about those policy areas, which allows you to get your foot in the door for the jobs you really want later. Um, yeah, that would be that would be me. That's brilliant. Um, my One of my first managers said that very thing as well, that if he wasn't learning, anymore that's when it was time to go yeah um so it looks like I'll be at my job forever because I'm definitely <laughs> not grappling in the massive black hole that is all knowledge on human rights anytime soon yep. <laughs> um, my piece of advice is to I mean I think I've definitely said this before but I'm trying to keep on the party line of whippa here um surrounding yourself with with people that inspire you and that you can mm. look up to um on a personal note I heard some really great advice the other week that was if you are not um excited to be compared to your partner then you're with the wrong partner you know if you're not excited to be mm. compared to what their personality is like then you're with the wrong person and I think it's the same with the people you surround yourself with professionally mm. and in your friend group as well like your friends and your personal connections are also a reflection on you and I think just surrounding yourself with really great people as we do at Whip of Scotland is a great way to just boost your own confidence mm -hmm. and um, boost your skill set as well because you just never know what you're going to learn from someone. Mm -hmm. Okay, Kim's your go. <laughs> the reason I was panicking is because I was at a Whip event this week and it was the that was the exact topic was like what are your tips and like and it was um so I was just I'm annoyed that I don't have my notebook next to me. Um, but it, it's funny because the friendship um, element, question or point that you've just raised is something that we discussed at the event. So I'll need to off offline we can discuss um, that discussion. But I think um, I don't know if this is the best career advice I've ever had, but it's definitely the most recent. Given this was Wednesday, I think of this week <laughs> um, was Louise McDonald um, from that event was basically saying the most important thing is being unapologetically yourself. So um, I think that that can be really challenging when you're first starting off in your career because you feel like you have to be this like perfect professional like Barbie and you, you know you don't have to be you can be exactly yourself you can come to meetings not take notes and you know splurge all your personal problems maybe, maybe not but you know you know what I mean basically <laughs> bring your whole self to work and I think that that is really hard and I'm constantly checking myself um, with that but mm -hmm. yeah I think most recent advice and potentially the best advice. I think especially that's really good, especially for women, because I think we're still in a situation where, you know, more women are in the workplace, more women are in leadership positions, but we're still expected to perform as leaders 
in a masculine way like it's still Mm -hmm. expected like it's unprofessional to be emotional it's unprofessional to have to dive out all the time to deal with personal issues and I think it's something I've been thinking about a lot you know seeing the incredible women that I work with at Poverty Alliance and indeed the wider third sector is like you know women are so often central to running homes dealing with children and dealing with careers that when we put these really masculine constraints on them it's just it's putting people into a losing game and I think yeah I'm just coming back to that like America Ferrera monologue in the Barbie movie if you've not seen it yet go see it if you can't be bothered going to the cinema you can actually rent it on Prime which I found out yesterday and I didn't know and it's cheaper than a cinema ticket I saw this too and I was like how is it already there um like yeah capitalism (laughs) anyway to make money but yeah like it's definitely that whole thing of I think that's um as a society and as leaders especially if you're a man listening to this um you need to recognize and embrace more feminine leadership styles and more feminine lives because women are now in that position where yes we're in the workplace but we're still doing everything we did before and it is exhausting and I think that we need to do a better job about empowering each other to be leaders but be leaders as our rights as women too and I think that that's something we still have a lot of work to do yeah um on that I don't think I can end on a better note um other than if you have been inspired by this podcast please join us at Women in Public Affairs Scotland. You can do so by going to our website and uh, signing up there for our mailing list. Or you can get in touch with us at whipusscotland at gmail.com. I often get that wrong on this podcast. Or <laughs> our uh, social media x slash Twitter profile at Women in PA Scott. Thanks so much for joining us, Ashley. Thank um, you for having me. Yeah, I hope to see you um, at the Challenge Poverty Week event soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Unofficial Report. If you have enjoyed this episode, then please like and subscribe and tell your friends, colleagues and networks about us. And even better, if you fancy being on a guest on a future episode or know somebody who might be, then follow and chat to us on Twitter at Women in PA Scott. Or you can email us at whippascotland at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been the Unofficial Report.